Brent Smith from Shinedown joins us for this week's episode of Behind the Vinyl. Brent is was over here in Stockholm, so we sat down with myself and Nicholas, and it's uh, it's always a pleasure to 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 chat and just hang with Brent. Great great guy. Um, who, um, I think myself and and Nicholas both hold him dear in our hearts, a, a close friend, and his. His musical output is just so great. You know, I'm a I'm a massive Shinedown fan, and they just keep delivering time and time and time again. And they have again with their latest album, Planet Zero, which is out on April 22nd. Make sure you go and check it out. It's um, such a great record, such a roller coaster ride of 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 you know magical songs. You know, it's. Um, it's a really, really great record. Great follow-up to their last album, Attention, Attention, which was also great. Um, they are just enjoying a, an amazing run of number one singles. And their, their most recent single, Planet Zero, again went to number one in the charts, in the radio charts, in the active radio charts, over in active rock radio charts, I'll get it right, in America. And, and rightfully so. And this is one of the one of the coolest riffs I've heard for a long time, starting up um, the song Planet Zero. And th- there's just riffs all over this record. It's it's just great. And although we're we're sitting down with um, Brent and we're talking about him, the, the performance of the guys Eric Barry and Zach on this record is just absolutely amazing as well. So go and check it out. Um, Full disclosure, we're going to have Brent back on the show on the week of release. Plus, we're going to talk with Eric as well, uh, Zach as well, and Barry as well, just to give you the the full scope on the ins and outs of this record because it really is that good. So enjoy the show. Uh, Brent's a great interview. Um, and listen to the new album when it comes out, April 22nd. Alrighty, Mr. Brent Smith of Shinedown again. Again, yes. I'm stoked to be here though. <laughs> we, uh, it's like hanging out with you know my boys. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm into it. We, we love having you as always. Right back at you, man. So we're we're coming up to the release of the new record, Planet Zero. That's not too far far away. Nope. Um, and we've talked to the whole band. We've talked to all of you guys, including you, which everyone can tune into that um, on the week of release. But yep. um, preceding that, on the lead up to that, we thought we'd. Uh, Run past you've you've just hit um, number one again with Planet Zero uh, in the um, in the active rock radio chart. Yep, Billboard chart over in the US. Yep, which is phenomenal. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's like uh, still kind of one of those things in life that uh, is hard to wrap my head around. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to wrap my head around the fact that there's 28 singles <laughs> between seven <laughs> albums. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, that in and of itself is like what. And now that's um, that's just unbelievable. That's unbelievable. And, yeah. and now you're the number one number one artist in the Billboard in regards to the active rock radio list. Yeah. So the Billboard chart, um, we have the most number ones on Billboard. They have the most number ones on the active rock chart as well, and both of the chart histories. Um, we also hold the most um, the most top five uh, songs on the chart. Um, and I think we're tied with the most top tens with like uh, Tom Petty and the Foo Fighters. Yep. So it's wow. kind of nuts all the way around. And and when you're talking about um, uh, when you're talking about artists like Tom Petty, 
It's yeah. pretty amazing, you know. Yeah. With, with such a legacy of someone like Tom Petty, he's been around for so long and um, and so so American. You know, it's it's yeah. very much part of a American culture. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is part of American culture. So it's, yeah, a, it's a thousand great percent. Feat, you know, well done. Thank you very very much. No, it's amazing company to be in. A hundred percent. But also that went leading up to an album, to an album's release, and, and once that album is released. Is that just like a big sigh of, oh, finally, it's out, now it's all up to, you know. I think for me personally, when the record finally comes out, I'm actually a bit of the opposite of it. I'm more of, when the album comes out, I'm the guy that's like, okay, now it's on. Right, okay. You know, because that idea that, you know, there's this quintessential thing with, you know, artists just in general nowadays, especially with media, it is one of those elements where like, you know, so your record came out today. Are you working on anything new? Yeah. <laughs> and it's sometimes that actually gets asked. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just kind of like, um, well, the record just came out. Yeah, no, but are you working on anything new? And so you have to look at it from different perspectives. At least the way I see it is once the album is released, it's a big world. And also, too, that usually um, follows with it a very specific touring cycle. Like this year, particularly for us, we have never like booked an entire year out in advance. Like We're already booking shows into 2023 um, because we pretty much have most of this year booked out. We have 199 dates this year. So we booked all that ahead of time. But yeah, I'm maybe a little different. Like There is a there's a um there's definitely a deep breath if you will because finally it's out uh but i have more of the mindset of once it's launched i'm uh i'm more of the guy that's like okay now it's on cool all right nice um what about in regards to picking the single once the album's out you know how do you uh do you, do you know going ahead this is going to be single two single three single four so on and so forth or can that sometimes alter? Maybe it's reaction from the fans when you play it live or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it, it does depend. The The internet can kind of help you out sometimes with that in a, in a very unique way. But I will tell people this. I come from the school of listen to your heart and listen to your gut. Um, you know, for us, I picked Planet Zero um, to be the first single, not because it was the title track. But it, was, it was because I knew that was the first one that needed to go. Um, ahead of time and uh, not unlike what you know on the last album what devil was right. you know and and even going back a little further to threat to survival like everybody knew cut the cord was first um, the the first singles always kind of raised their hand for the most part it's the second the third and the fourth and fifth because it's even crazy to say that we've had album cycles where there's been five six singles off of one record um, but it is true um, attention, attention. How yeah, much did you have with that? It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. It was um, like Def Leppard style with Hysteria. Yeah. Like seven the biggest singles. one was probably Sound of Madness because we had, I remember Sound of Madness was Devour into Second Chance, into Sound of Madness, into If You Only Knew, into The Crow and the Butterfly, and then The, the Juggernaut became Diamond Eyes. Right. And... Um, yeah, that cycle was really wild, um, and the same thing too with um, with Amaryllis. I mean, I don't think we, the only album that we had less than four singles would have been um, 
It was actually the um, it was actually the second album. We only had three singles off that record because we had four singles off the first album. Right. right. Yeah. And but the second album we only had we well we had our first number one alternative radio hit with Save Me. Um, but then we had Heroes, and then we had I Dare You. But that was an interesting cycle just all the way around. Um, but for this particular record and moving forward into that, like in my heart and in my gut, I know that the second single needs to be um, for the mass. Uh, I feel like it needs to be the song Daylight uh, because I don't think if we if we do it later, it's going to have a different um, it's going to have a different effect. Um, and if you don't do a song like that second, you may not get to it. Um, I think in this day and age, too, when you look at radio and you look at the way uh, DSPs are, streaming services, YouTube, the dynamics of all that, there's not a formula, per se. You kind of still have to go with your gut.
how much is that? How much is it? Um, you guys picking the singles and and what's the um, the input from say the the label and and people around you picking singles? Is it just you picking the singles? Well, how does it work? And I'm going to butt in there, and this is maybe you can run on it because you've had a guy that's been with you. He's effectively the fifth member of the band, you know. Well, sixth member or seventh member, depending on management, because they've been with you for 21 years. But you know, you've been with him for for 21 years as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, Steve yeah. Robertson in the industry, he's known as Steve O. Um, and um, yeah, the thing about my relationship with Steve Robertson, um, it's a very, very deep relationship because he's the man that was the one that signed me to the first band that I was signed to Atlantic. I was right. initially dropped after that, then re-signed, and then me and him went on the three-year journey together. Uh, he's the main guy that put me in front of so many different people, so many different songwriters, so many different really connections more than anything, and helped network um, and helped me figure out uh, who I was. Um The interesting thing is I, along with his help, obviously, um, I A&R'd Attention Attention in a lot of ways um, while we were writing it, while we were recording it. But Steve also knows that he taught me how to do those things. Like, I'm always constantly learning from him. And same thing, too, with Bill McGathy, who's the manager of the band. I mean, these are guys that have been in the industry for a long time. I mean, Bill's been a part of rock and roll um, four decades now. Um, and so he has a wealth of knowledge. And once again, he's kind of the guy that has always made a point to me too. And that is, you know, you got to pick it from your, from your gut. It's got to come from your heart, but there are guys and girls and magnificent A&R people where they just can, they can just hit it. Right. Like they just, and you might be like, it's, you think it's this song? And, some people have a track record where there's a reason sh- that they're saying it. Right. You should probably go with it. Um, but I think that the last two albums, um, especially with Attention and now with this one, you know, look, I, I had a little bit of pushback um, with Planet Zero. There were some other songs that were looked at as a potential first. But I said, I'm, I'm doing everything that the people that mean the most to me and that have taught me the most have... Um, have not only helped me learn and have taught me over the years, which is stick to your guns. Uh, If you really believe in something, uh, then do that. Um, But I always welcome everybody's opinion. But for the most part, um, I think that I know what I'm doing. Um, I always talk to the band about it before we look at the objective of everything. And the other thing, too, is this. Our album cycles aren't sprints. They're marathons. Right. Yeah. You know, we still tour pretty heavily. I mean, you're gonna get you're gonna get roughly two years out of a Shinedown album at right. bare minimum, you know, with an album cycle. And you know, knock on wood, you're gonna at least get you know, you're not gonna get any less than four singles. It's how you time them. Um so I don't necessarily know if there's a science to any of it. I think uh I've been taught, I'm still learning, uh, but I know that Steve-O is very much of the same, uh, he agrees with me, like with Daylight being second, and we have kind of a thought process of how we're going to maneuver that with what we might put out next, but also, too, you have to look at the 
the licensing and the publishing side of things and also syncs and you know film television you know are there songs inside of the new record and even your catalog that sometimes you'll um not compete with but you know we have a pretty vast catalog yeah but obviously there's songs on this new record that we feel are very uh poignant to this time in human history you mentioned when you when you first got signed uh didn't you work with desmond child i did yeah and working with a guy like this i mean what did you learn from working with a guy who's written tons of hits That he would be the first person to tell you that he's been extremely lucky that he has worked with really talented people. Right. Like he, and I only had a short time with him, but my God, he was he was such a cool guy. He really, really was. And it was more about, um, like we wrote one song together, and it was an okay song. Um, but the thing is, is he writes, has written thousands of songs, like literally written thousands of songs. And, you know, he was the type of individual where, um, you know, his whole point of interest, I think, also, too, was he had been through so many decades of music also. Because I worked with him early 2000, right. like literally like the year 2000, 2000, yeah, right around 1999, 2000. Um, and, I mean, his whole thing is that, He's listening for um, – he needs to be able to bounce the ideas off the artist. I mean, if you look back and see, like, everything from Aerosmith, every you know, that he did with them, you know, Dude Looks Like a Lady, everything on Permanent Vacation. But then you go in, man, and you don't realize that – I mean, he was one of the big architects of Bon Jovi's New Jersey. Yeah. You know, and that's actually a really – dark record in some regards it's actually a really heavy record for them for a guy that has a very pop bass sensibility too i mean there was some heavy uh subject matter in that record um so it's it's being versatile and once again with an artist if they know their craft if they know who they are when you're a songwriter your goal is also to kind of pull from that artist who they are and work off of that, whether it be melodically, musically, or what have you. But with Desmond, I think his whole thing was, I've been very, very lucky to work with just incredible artists. Right. Cool. Six, uh, six decades of number one. He's had, he's had a decade in six different... Uh, had a number one in six different decades. Yeah, cool. Yeah, It's a lot of work, man. Yeah. A lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. A lot of music, too. Yeah. A lot of music. different styles. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah.
quickly on there about movies and soundtracks and so on and so forth. Um, so let's pick a few songs, a few number ones. Diamond Eyes. What about Diamond Eyes? <laughs> now let's, like... let's, let's dig around a little bit. Dig around. Oh, let's, my God. <clears throat> let's dig around. So obviously it was used on a, <laughs> you know, on a soundtrack. It was. Yep. Um, Sylvester Stallone movie. Yep. The first Expendables. Exactly. What um, ignited a... a uh, a chain reaction yeah. of what <laughs> yeah. is it three four yeah, now yeah. something yeah. like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> um interesting uh some lyrical content in there that you some uh basically tell us a tell us a story about sylvester stallone so stallone um i know that we got this opportunity because one of his daughters had i believe at the time had heard Second Chance when it was like crossing over into, you know, the the mass mainstream between Top 40 and what have you. And she was like, I think you would dig this band. Um, and so he contacted some people that contacted the management. And, and I'll just get right to it. Uh, Stallone, I wish everybody uh, was like Stallone in regards <laughs> to he knew exactly what he wanted. He was actually very, very forthright with like telling us like, I want it four on the floor. Think ACDC. Uh, Fortunate Son, Cle- uh, you know, Cretan's Clearwater Revival, that kind of idea. Um, you can write it about what you want to. I needed a bit of a script of what the storyline was about and what have you. The only thing that he said that he needed from us was he said, cool, we're all uh, we're all on the same page. One last thing. I need you to use the words boom, lay, boom, lay, boom. And I was like, 
shit. <laughs> well, yeah, um, um, not because, um, not because I was like, "What is that?" I was just kind of my my thought process was, "How am I going to make that cool?" Yeah. Um, and you find out that like his whole inspiration to the film was this poem, where the narrator in the poem, uh, I think there's like six paragraphs in the poem, and the narrator in each excerpt into the poem, he says, boom, lay, boom, lay, boom. So there was a lot more that went into like the design work of like this movie that he developed called The Expendables. And he took that initiative to go that deep with me. So what I tried to do is um, write a song about the connection of all of those Expendables and, you know, what they all meant to each other and those dynamics. And that's where, you know... I'm on the front line. Don't worry, I'll be fine. And those types of the thing, the story is just beginning. Those types of things, um, but also uh, I remember one of the the elements was we didn't have the spoken word part in the beginning, but Eric had that intro, and originally it just it was a long intro, and then it went into the dan dan dan, and then me doing the big woo, and then the song comes in, and I just remember going. It's a cool intro to develop like that, but it's a lot of just intro with no kind of vocal or it's not that interesting. And so like last minute, like I literally did the spoken word off the top of my head. I literally just went in off the cuff. We were actually at Johnny K's um, studio in Chicago. Um, and Johnny actually did the editing on the vocals for that, even though it was... Uh, Eric's production and what have you. It was cool that Johnny K let us go into his studio and do the vocals, but I just walked in there and just did that spoken word off the top of my head. I am the <laughs> nice. Great, <laughs> Great lyrics to have to try to stick yeah. in there as well. It was fun. Good old slide.
just beginning I say goodbye to my weakness So long to Great song. I can Thank remember you. the first time that I heard that song and I was just like, fuck, this is a monster. A little bit like um, Planet Zero, you know? Bit. Um, a bit. In regards to my feeling. Yeah. Like, like, this is a golden track. Yeah. Um, tell me about the, the writing process of that and, and how that song started to 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 come into existence. I remember um, the biggest thing about that was I, if, I'm, if I don't... I'm trying to, that was a while ago. I'm just trying to remember the session for that. Because that was Attention, Attention, obviously, that record. Um, We didn't know that that was going to be a conceptual record until we wrote the song Get Up during that particular, uh, that whole time frame was very unique. Devil was written very early um, in the writing process. I remember we wrote Devil, and then we immediately, like the next song we wrote after Devil was Monsters. Right. so um, we're making a Halloween record. Anyway. <laughs> um, Some of these songs are pretty heavy. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. And, and that's another thing we'll talk about, how, they, how you can the, – the, the different shades of shine down. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yet still getting a number one spot because Devil's pretty heavy, man. It's very heavy, yeah. Um, th- that was something where – um, I remember Eric had just gotten a studio uh, Kemper. So a Kemper is a, um, for some people that are musicians, they'll know about this, especially guitar players. A Kemper is like a, um, instead of like a traditional guitar head, it's like every single head that you could possibly imagine in one box. So it's a, it's a computer-generated software, um, and they have a live version of them, and then they have a studio rack mount version. And he had a studio rack mount version that he was just kind of trying out and things of that nature. And I remember he had just kind of landed on a cool sound, and he was playing guitar through like a Telecaster also. But I remember... He had the click track going. We were starting to put a basis together for a song. We were opening up a session. He said, "I had this kind of riff in my head. I just I'm trying to, I'm trying to clean it up, and uh, it's a little, it's a little wonky, as we would say. Like it's not all the way flushed out. And I just remember, kind of saying, "Don't overthink it. Just play it, you know." And so like the riff that you hear, you know, of Devil, like there's one main guitar. Um, that's built off the demo that you hear on the record, but that's the take that you hear on the album is that first run through that he did, and he just kept it. And we, it was kind of like uh, it was um, as we were writing the song, it was kind of what would 
be considered a scratch track because he said, oh, I'll go back to it and tidy it up later. And when he went back in and tried to like redo it, it just didn't sound the same. Um, it just didn't have the same thing. Um, so that was one kind of deep dive into the, the song itself. Um, was that Zach or was that Eric playing the guitar? Eric played the guitar played on the that. Eric, Zach went in and did overdubs and yep. the choruses and all the other things. But like the main riff and the verse, that was that was Eric. Right, like yep. that that main riff. Yep. Um, but if if I recall too, um, I wanted something that you know. There's been always this kind of unique thought process back in the day. If if shine down because of the name of the band, if it was a, uh, if it was a, uh, is there a biblical sense to this band? Is there something uh, God, you know, is, is there, you know, people have asked before, they're like, are you a Christian band? Right. And I've always been not at all. Um, there's nothing biblical actually about anything in our material. Um, the thing about it is, is a lot of our, our subject matter is about the human condition and we have a lot of conditions, but, and I'm a God fearing man, don't get me wrong. Um, but the thing is too, is what I wanted to do was kind of take this ideology of like what the devil is, um, to, to certain people and, and not that kind of approach of it's a, you know, a red figure with horns, like a devil can sometimes be your alter ego, like you know that that dynamic. And I didn't know I was gonna kind of go deeper into it, and that's when monsters came because we wrote devil, and then monsters was like the next song. So I was kind of on this very unique uh, road, if you will. Um, but also too, I remember Eric was like when we were recording the vocals and we were putting the lyrics together, um, he wanted the lyrics and he wanted the vocal to be percussive. Like he wanted there to be a kind of like a different way that I would do it. Um, well, it was melodic, but that it had, he, I always remember when I was in the studio with him, he was like, it's got to have more teeth. Like it's got to have more bite. It's got to be more staccato. Like you got to like use your voice as, as think of like, think like a drummer, you know? So that's some stuff that I can remember just uh, recording the actual song. Who knows what my mind was going through when I put the words down.
back like to when you guys started out do you remember ever like well you must have having the feeling of like when you felt like shinedown was really taking off and that you were really onto something like you felt like wow this is something's happening do you remember anything like that it's interesting because like i didn't I didn't really find my sobriety until the Amaryllis right, record. Yeah. So I do remember that people were telling me during Sound of Madness when I was still drinking and doing things I shouldn't have been doing, probably, lucky to be alive. Um, they were like, hey, man, th this is starting to go. Right. Like, for real. And I don't think I was aware of it at the time. Right. And, which might have helped me a little bit to, to, to a point. Because I remember, like, we... I remember the last touring element of what we did during the Sound of Madness is we did this tour called Anything and Everything, which was like a storyteller's um, album of like the entire catalog up to that point. And what I didn't realize I had done to myself is that I had put all of the weight of the show on me because I had to talk about these songs. Um, and... You know, we had a bunch of people on that tour where we had extra musicians on that tour and we were working with a lot of different people on that tour. It was a really special time. I look back and we documented it. We actually filmed it with a DVD. Um, but to go back and watch that, you can see how I didn't really realize how it was taken off. And we were playing these theaters like between 3,000 3,500 bigger theaters in America the entire tour was sold out like in advance and I mean they're just stacked to the rafters and here I am up there explaining all of these songs and I think that was probably a moment in time for me towards the end of a 36 month touring cycle right and close to I think the last I mean I mean, we clocked in at like 440-something shows in 36 wow. months, which Jesus. was a lot. And um, yeah. that was probably something when I looked back on it, um, that particular tour, because, I mean, every single song, like in between when I would speak on them and what have you, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Right. Like, they weren't, they were listening. Like, they actually, and there was a lot of young 
young young fans like uh, and that was the other that was the time too when i started to notice that and i noticed it even more on amaryllis where like i started to see eight to 80 happening right right where like this generational um overwhelming like holy like everybody from all walks of life are out here like you would see like kids and then you would see much older people like throwing down and like just having an amazing time but like when i started to see how it was so multicultural also and it just and then as we started to tour more internationally um seeing it in different countries that was a big part of where i started to go all right it it's starting to it's starting to move yeah it's starting to expand yeah um because that's probably the biggest thing for me like what i i focus on the most is i really want the band to be a global band it's something that's really important to me um but those two records, I would say, like towards the back half of The Sound of Madness in the beginning of, of Amaryllis um, was when I started to notice that um, we may actually have some real staying power. Right, yeah. My eyes are open wide By the way I made it through the day I watched the world outside I'm leaving out today I just saw Haley's comet She Said why you always running in place Even the man in the moon disappeared Somewhere in the stratosphere Tell my mother, tell my father 
your struggles with alcohol and addiction. Yeah. Um, did that how to what extreme did that affect your actual shows? Were you drinking before the shows? Never. It was always post show. It was always after. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. You could, never walk. No, no, no. I would never walk on stage high. <clears throat> what like, now? Why was that? Why like? Because um, I couldn't do it. Is that the reason why? Because I'm wondering if you. If you were under the influence, how could you pull off a show in a tour like that? With it's impossible. Yeah. yeah, like the thing, the the one thing that I would not do is I would not sabotage the show. I'd sabotage my personal life, yeah. um, but I would not sabotage a show yeah. by knowing like I never drank a drop before I walked on stage. Like all day long, even if I was hungover all day long, and it was like I had a show and I knew. I could drink a Killian's Red, pop two aspirins, it'd probably make it a little better. Um, I just would not do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that I just, I was still respectful of the craft, you yeah. know. And I was in bad shape. I mean, especially during the Sound of Madness era, that was probably the worst shape I was in. Um, and I was drinking, I mean, to be totally frank about it, I mean, I was drinking at least... Probably the equivalent of, uh, I mean, I got there at a certain point in time where I was drinking probably maybe four to five pints, uh, the equivalent of like four or five pints, or a fifth, you know, of uh, kettle one a night, you know, like every night. And it was just my, you know, what I used to call, you know, nighttime juice. But it wasn't nighttime juice because I would black out because I would just hammer it. Like as soon as I walked off stage, I was right to the bottle. You know, it was like immediate. And uh, and then when you add cocaine to that and you add, you know, different types of opioids and pills and things of that nature and, you know, doing things that are just, you know, how are you still uh, walking around? You know, uh, I'm very you're sitting across from a very lucky individual yeah. um, that was able to kind of figure it out before it was too late because um, it, it did get there. Definitely. What about, did you ever use it as a crutch on, and when you were writing music? Because you, you hear that old cliched comment about, um, I can't actually remember what it is, but you know, like um, people use... So you get inspired you, you get while inspired. you're doing drugs and exactly. stuff like that? Exactly, you yeah. know, like the old... Opens uh, up the... Uh, open up, opens up your mind. Right. You get, yeah. 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 Which, in fact, it's, it's kind of proven to shut it down. Yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting... Uh, so... You know, I've often said this because it's true. At least it's my experience. What happened to me? Um, you know, you get your whole life to do your first record, and if that first record is really successful, you'll get six months to do your second one, yeah. and that's exactly what happened. Um, so by the time I I was drinking heavily during uh, the first record, I was you know, but I, I had all of this you know up to that point life experience because I had books upon books upon journal books of just I mean, dude. I had so much to pull from uh, on that first album. And, um, and in the second album, I still had some things that I hadn't, you know, used yet. And, uh, but I was drinking, you know, during sessions. But I would drink like the night before. Or I would drink if I was writing or something like that. But like I was never high when I got on a mic. Like I was never, I was always clear headed when it was time to record. Um, but what I would do in the off time of that, you know, yeah, I would drink and, and it would open up these different, you know, it did at times, you know, it would open up a different um, portal, if you will. But I went through that, 
that time, like Sound of Madness was a very intense time for me. Uh, the, the writing process for that was extremely uh, interesting and heavy because the band, um, I met a very important person during that time named Dave Bassett, who really, in all honesty, Dave Bassett in the studio is the fifth member of the band. Um, he's been with us from the Sound of Madness uh, album cycle. He has been a part of the writing process every single record uh, since Sound of Madness on. Um, and yeah, man, I was, you know, when it wasn't time to sing or what have you, I was still drinking during that. Um, probably doing some other things I shouldn't have been doing. Amaryllis, I started to kind of get my, my, my stuff together. Um, and uh, so it was a little bit different at that point in time. And then, you know, look, I'll be really open with you all about another thing that happened to me. You know, after, you know, I cleaned up in 2011 and I was much, I was sober from 2011 to 2014. And what happened was after the Amarillo cycle, I had, um, I had a slip up and, you know, had an issue because I had fallen off the wagon for uh, a couple of months and it was a not a fun time for me. That's one of the reasons why I named the fifth album Threat to Survival uh, because there were some hairy things going on there too. Um, but I got myself together. I've actually been clean since March 1st of 2016. Um, and... Uh, the interesting thing about Attention Attention was it was technically the very first record that I ever wrote completely sober. Right. Yeah. I I did not I did not partake in anything uh during Attention Attention. And I remember Eric talking about the fact that I was really nervous <laughs> to wonder if cuz I used to think like I had to be messed up to write messed up. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um but that really wasn't um that's a facade that that alcohol can kind of why it makes everything hazy. The thing the the thing is is that with attention attention I had to really focus the entire time because the level of songwriting was m much more it was much more aggressive. The conceptual ideas that were going on on that album, you had to really have your wits about you to understand how you were weaving everything. Not to mention we were creating a film on right. top of yeah. it. Yeah. Um and so there were all these dynamics, but, uh, you know, Eric was always pretty straightforward with me. Um, he was like, this is a guy that was afraid that he couldn't write um, without, uh, you know, that he couldn't write sober because he didn't think that he would have an edge. And uh, and then he goes out here and, and writes a record where uh, this is probably him at his most dangerous. Yeah. Um, but that's another thing, because I had a really good friend of mine that she once told me, she said, you're way more dangerous when you're sober, dude. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. when you're sober and you're clear-headed and focused, that's when you're the most dangerous.
sounds like you were you must have been what they call a a functioning alcoholic since you make you, sort of you, you can make that decision that i'm not going to drink before the show and i mean yeah you, to a point you're but not I, staggering around completely but i was a um i was a horrible human being when i was drunk right like there was you know to the point of where like i was drunk when I would drink, I would drink to fall down. I wasn't drinking to have a good time. I was drinking to, like, make the day go away. Right, yeah. And uh, there's just an evil, mean person in there. Um, and he's always going to be in there. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, it's just I can't allow him to – I can't let him out. Right. And it's a very – it's pretty – it's very elementary. People will ask me sometimes, does it annoy you that you can't just have a glass of wine or or a beer or what have you? I'm like, no, not really. Because those pathways that are are carved in your mind when you do start to take substances, you're ne- you're always gonna chase the first high. Mm. The first time you got high. You're just you're just chasing that. Right. Um the sad thing about that is um you're never gonna get there again. And the roads aren't repaved 
they they all still lead to the same dead end. So for me, it's just not enjoyable. Like there's not the part of my brain that I'm trying to like get euphoria from. There's something in me, man, that uh, and it may be genetic. It probably is because um, alcoholism runs in my family. Um, it runs in a lot, a lot of people's family. Yeah. But for me, I have to also remember too that I'm responsible for my 14 year old son. I'm no good to him if I'm dead. Right. And so those 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 things take over. Like, um, and, and you have to ask yourself what, what's really important and what matters the most. And also, uh, sometimes it just comes down to, you have to believe in yourself. Like you don't need something to inebriate you for you to be creative. Just right. be yourself. Don't be the other person that's trying to destroy you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. We've got a couple of minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to round it up. Um, Planet Zero. Planet Zero. So let's bring it forward. Um, we've talked a little bit about that. I think the riff is absolutely amazing. Thank you. It's great. I'll um, tell. I'll tell Eric you said so. So, so what? What? Um, what are you? What are you saying? He kind of reminds me a little bit about Charlie Benante from from um, Anthrax. Okay. In, in the fact he's the the drummer of Anthrax. Yeah. Oh, I know who he is. And and he writes the majority of the guitar riffs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, yeah. The, all yeah. the songs. And Eric just seems to be spitting out these ridiculously killer riffs all the time. He um, woodsheds. A lot. Like he's he he's always got an instrument in his hand. Like he's very rarely without an instrument, especially when we're making a record. I mean, he's also with a guitar specifically. He's trying to see what he can make the guitar do that he's not been able to make it do before. Not that he's trying to be Joe Satriani right. or that he's trying to be Steve Vai. <clears throat> excuse me. Or um you know, a guitar dude, he Probably one of his biggest influences in the entire world is uh, and was uh, Eddie Van Halen. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I mean, huge uh, influence on him, uh, Eric, as a guitar player. Um, and I've said this before, too. Like, you know, Eric plays bass live on stage, you know, in Shinedown. He plays bass, like, in the, the record. But oddly enough, too, like, Zach played a bunch of bass on the new record, Planet Zero, and Eric played a lot of guitar. He told us that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was very interesting, actually. Um, and they did a little bit of that on Attention, Attention. But going back to the the riff and going back to the song, and, and Eric's trying to always kind of see what he's not been able to make a guitar do that he's doing. Like, you know, he goes through these different kind of... You know, he's he really listens to the guitar. Like he knows the inner workings of it and what it's capable of doing. And people talk about like, well, there's only twelve notes. But he doesn't look at it like that. He's like, Yeah, there's twelve notes, but it's there's unlimited tunings and phrasing and effects and, and how you utilize this and how you combat it with everything else. So um that riff particularly, uh, he labored over that riff. Like I, I remember there were a lot of different variations before he kind of settled on what he thought had the most heart and had the most, um, you know, once again, had the most attitude, but also something where he he wanted, when people heard it, he did want people to go. He had two schools of thought. He had, that shine down is what he wanted people to think, and then... The other thing you wanted people to think was that shine down. You know what I mean? Like it was just it, it was something like, you know, there was an, a level of, you know, we are a band, but we're not just a rock band. We're we're inspired by a lot of different sounds, a lot of different. We're very eclectic. 
because we listen to a lot of things. We're inspired by a lot of stuff. But we're very much rock and roll to the bone. But there's elements inside of this album where also we wanted to push the envelope um, in regards to we're also heavily influenced by heavy metal. You know, and it's some of the stuff on this record is the first time you're hearing us go there on some of these elements from a metal standpoint. The lead off track of the the album, for example, is very punk rock, but it's also very metal. Um, And, you know, coming into that, Planet Zero had a lot of weight that it had to hold up. Um, So it's not just like, and that's a killer riff. It's for him, like Eric is really dissecting what is actually going on and how is the person on the receiving end, uh, how are they going to digest it? And we talked about that, the, the keyboard intro, 2184. Yeah. How that is. At least you said it. It is. That it was a bit of a nod to it's an Van Halen and yeah. 1984. 100%. Really cool. Yeah. Really cool. But just stand up. How is he delivering that to you? What, what's he delivering when he's delivering that to you? How, how much is he, is he putting a little bit of drums behind it? Is he delivering you a, a somewhat of a, a, of, of a song or is he just giving you an idea? No, we're 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 building it out. You're building it out. We're so building it out, me and him. Collective. Yeah, as we as we're in there with each other. Here's the thing about it, also too, because he's so he knows all the technological side of like recording. A lot of times, what will happen is, um, <laughs> him and Barry have an incredible working relationship with each other because he will build out the parts a lot of time, and he can make it sound like a drummer. Like, he can go in with these... They're not drum machines anymore. Like, he's using a keyboard to build the drums right. a lot of times. And then he's placing everything. And then he goes in and he'll map it out. And um, when he maps it out, he's sending it to Barry at the same time. And he's showing him, like, this is what I'm thinking. He wants it to come from Barry. He wants Barry to... But Barry's really... Like, this just shows the level of uh, professional... I guess you would say how professional Barry is... Barry will tell you, I can play all the, he's like, I can play all the fast stuff. I can do all the fancy stuff, but I am a song drummer. I'm a facilitator. I am the literal foundation of the song. I am the backbone. You know, I am the bones. And um, he wants to make sure that that foundation is titanium. Yeah. And... Whether it's groove oriented, whether it's speed oriented, is it facilit is it facilitating the song? Are you playing for the song? Um, he's not playing to show off, but but what Eric wanted Barry to do on this record was, I want you to show everybody what you can do. Like I want you to push yourself this time, where I'm not going to come up with everything. I want you to show me what you would do. Like so, if that means you're a little bit more busy in parts of songs, or if you're a little bit more um, kind of not as uh, straight forward on certain things. Like, that was an element that allowed Barry this time around to um, to really push himself as a drummer. Like, Planet Zero, the breakdown in Planet Zero, and, like, how that all builds up and everything, like, that's that's all Barry. You know, like, all those notes and everything that he's doing there, like, Eric gives him a foundation and kind of like an, an area to, to work around. But as we're writing the song, a lot of times it's we'll get a kind of a standard drum line together, and then we'll start stacking the guitars. 
we'll go back and forth. Once everybody gets in the room together, we'll start looking at it from that aspect. But one dynamic of the songwriting is um, you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. You want to be able to figure out exactly, let's start off a certain way, and then we'll bring other people in, you know, that, that we need to. At least that's what it's been like the last couple of records with me and Eric. And it works for us. Love it, Brent. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thank Thanks you, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Down!